Hello and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Lass with me, Lucy Baxter, as featured on BBC Radio 4 Extra's Podcast Hour, BBC Radio Manchester and also now BBC Radio Lancashire. Laura Massaro, who is a retired professional squash player, she is one of the most successful female squash players from this country and of all time. And I'm so thrilled to say she joins me today. So welcome to the podcast, Laura. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Take me back to when you were younger. Um, How did you sort of get into playing squash? Yeah, I mainly started playing because my parents played. I think that's how a lot of squash players end up getting into the sport. And particularly in the 80s when when squash was kind of booming and spent a lot of time down at the squash club. And I think I always say to people that my mum and dad must have thought it was like a good crash to just put me on a squash court and shut the door (laughs) and go and have a drink in the bar with friends and family. So, um, yeah, I just started because mum and dad played. And how old were you then when you sort of, played your first game when you were like a child uh so I probably started when I was about seven and then started playing kind of tournaments and stuff maybe around the age of 10 or 11 and mainly locally to start obviously and uh, and then further afield and so for those that don't know how can you how do you play squash sort of what are the rules what does it involve um so yeah for anyone who doesn't know squash you you play on kind of like a four-sided plaster court for in most most squash centers ledger centers gyms etc the pros also play on a four-sided glass court which is pretty cool because you can put that up anywhere in the world and the pro tour has some pretty cool locations played in front of the pyramids in Egypt Grand Central Station overlooking Kowloon uh, like Hong Kong on Kowloon side um it's some really amazing places and that's a huge benefit of squash um yeah with a wooden floor normally like if you see it in your ledge center and you basically hit a, a small rubber ball um which is soft um it's got air inside it onto the wall and uh it's allowed to bounce once before your opponent has to hit it and you can also volley it as well can't you from the wall and it can hit two walls it doesn't just have to hit the one wall is that right yeah you can hit it on the volley so before it bounces if you want and um, it's only allowed to bounce once you can it always has to hit the front wall at some point and so you can hit it off the back wall first directly onto the front wall or you can hit a boast which is off the side wall first onto the front wall um yeah so as long as it hits the front wall at some point and as long as it only bounces once or you know or doesn't bounce more than once let's say then then that's all good yeah I mean I used to play a little bit when I was probably five years ago just at the local leisure center with my dad and it's it's hard like you've got you've got to always be on your on your like guard concentrating because you don't know if they hit it against the sidewall to the front you've just got to be aware of where it's going to bounce and if it's going to be near or far and you've just got to really be on your toes haven't you yeah it's a bit of a unique sport in that um when you're training particularly as a professional um, you have to hit all sort of systems and areas uh, meaning you know you have to train um your speed you have to train your endurance because it can go on quite long you have to train your power and your strength and then obviously you have to train kind of the technical side where you actually have to be able to hit the ball so 
it's a great sport for that like from a pro perspective there's no days training which is um you know kind of the same everything's got a bit of a different side to it and um yeah I think it, it I think most people know that it's a pretty physically hard sport as well um, it's like a repeated sprint marathon they call it so it's it's a really tough sport and you have to be pretty fit to to kind of do it do it well and um I think the one thing I'd say with people who are just starting out with squash and when you, when it's tough is trying to play with the correct ball so a lot of people play with the balls that the pros play with and it doesn't bounce very much because obviously the pros hit it a lot harder and they're more skilled so you can get a, you can get balls that just bounce that little bit more and when they bounce more the rallies stay you know that little bit longer yeah. and it's definitely more enjoyable and how much training did you have to do to sort of become professional and what age were you when you were professional in the sport so yeah, I went to Preston College to do A-levels at kind of um, straight out of high school. And then I was going to go to university, decided to defer my place for a year and see how it went on the pro tour and kind of got my ranking up quite quickly and um, was traveling around doing, doing tournaments mainly within Europe. And once my ranking got up to a certain level, kind of never really looked back and <laughs> never actually took that place at uni. What were you going to sort of go to uni and do or had you not got I that? think I, I think I was quite keen to do something along like the physiotherapy lines or something like that. But I was probably going to study sports science to start. Um, but I did I did um, kind of have that sort of oh, I wonder how a physio would go or kind of get. I think my path always laid within sport. So there would definitely be something sporty. And did you used to train when you were sort of when you were locally training would you train sort of at a leisure center or did you have I'm having a vision of you just having like a squash court in your garden like what was <laughs> no I wish um so yeah obviously like when I started I live I lived in Chorley with my parents and we trained mainly out of Clayton Green Leisure Center in Whitley Woods uh Clayton Brook area and Chorley Leisure Center and then David Lloyd opened in 2001 which was right as I left college and went pro and um, that's been my training base ever since really which has been a brilliant kind of club to base myself out of because squash clubs notoriously are quite quiet during the day and you know got a really good atmosphere maybe at night or or did sort of back in the day when squash clubs were were booming a little bit more so David Lloyd's given me like kind of like that place where I can train during the day that's got a great gym and it's always busy and kind of good food and stuff so um yeah I've really really based myself there over since since it opened really in 2001. When you did your first professional match how did you sort of feel when you were climbing up the ranks and when you were like hey, I'm, I'm actually really really good at this how did that feel? Um well I mean you're always you're always kind of I guess well you're never really at the top until you're at the you're at the top and you've been there a long time so I knew that like when I went when I went professional for that year I knew there was a chance like I could give it a go and travel around and I started to get a few good wins and my ranking went up but we're only sort of talking kind of top 50 in the first year or so top 40 in the world which is great but it's not kind of right up there so it was like a long period really to try and get as high as I could up the rankings um and it took me it took me kind of a good 
what maybe maybe 10 12 years on tour before I reach world number one and it's you know like a long process and constantly trying to better yourself so that first match I think probably a lot of excitement a lot of nerves can't really remember if I won or lost it because I was playing on the pro tour while I was still at college playing trying to get an experience and stuff like that but I remember my first tournament win which was the German Open in 2004 and I remember that being a really big deal to kind of get my first title on the professional tour. And I guess when you get your sort of first title, do people take you a bit more seriously and they sort of think, oh, I better watch out for her. She's actually getting better and things. <laughs> I think a lot of the pro pro women will be aware of some good juniors coming through. Like as my professional career went on, you you know if there's a good junior around because they'll pop their head in the odd pro tournament and you'll see them beat kind of say like a pro who's maybe 20 or 30 in the world and it makes you sort of like stand up and think oh they're obviously going to be really good so you're a bit more prepared when you play them so I think probably people you hear the odd little bits of rumblings of oh there's a good junior coming through and you're a bit more aware of them when you play them for the first time and you've done so many competitions growing from strength strength to strength why don't you sort of talk me few through a few um maybe key matches or tournaments that stick out to you I think when uh, when people say sort of like what's your what's your favorite or kind of best wit and it's really hard to pick for me between being world champion and British Open champion because the British Open is like our Wimbledon of squash it's got so much history and it's been the longest running event so to get your name on that trophy with kind of all of the pros that have played over the years and it's such a prestigious event but for sure when I won the world championships that was the one that got the most amount of media attention which shocked me because I won the British Open first and to me that was a huge big a huge deal but the mainstream media kind of didn't really pick up too much on that I guess because no one maybe outside of squash knows just how prestigious the British Open is, even though obviously we all know British Open golf and Wimbledon and everything is really prestigious. But when I won the World Championships, it was it was pretty big and um, I was really surprised at, you know, how much media attention that got. So, uh, yeah, I think those two matches were probably my favourite two matches. The British Open mainly because um, I hadn't... Beat, I hadn't kind of won a won a major like what you class a major event up until that point and no one really expected me to do it against the girl who was world number one at the time who's like a legend and won like eight world titles Nicole David so that and to do it at home on British soil and stuff was really special and then obviously it's like the world championships does what it says on the tin doesn't it like if you say you're a world champion whether it's in formula one or athletics or squash then you know that someone's a world champion so that was that was also really special what's going through your head when you're actually playing the game because it's such a quick fast-paced game do you have time to sort of set up tactics in your head and oh I'll do this I'll hit it this wall and that or are you just sort of reacting to them or what's what's going through your head no yeah you 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 would kind of set out a um like a tactical plan before you go on court with the coach with your coach or with your team and um you know it'd be based around someone's weakness so maybe maybe like I was always really well known for kind of being quite physically fit and physically strong um not so much attack it like an attacking game really so I would 
tried to kind of hit hit a lot more to the back of the court and try and get in front of my opponent and volley, make it really hard for them to to win points against me. Whereas other people would would be trying to look to attack a little bit more or play certain shots. And I think one of my strengths was being quite good tactically. So if someone was quite weak in an area, maybe it was the front right hand corner or the back left corner then I was quite good at making sure I put the ball there over and over again. So, um, yeah, you definitely go on with a tactical plan. And is the world of squash in terms of players in the world quite small or do you all know each other? So when you play them, it's kind of playing a friend or do you tend to not really know anyone other than the British squash players? No, I think I think you'll find that most sports are quite small. Even even the big sports are quite small. Like you all know each other, and I think squash is the same. Really, you're traveling on tour. Like the ranking lists on the men's and the women's side, was, I think there's about a thousand pro pro players, but you wouldn't see all of them. So you end up in a small group of, I don't know, maybe kind of 50, 60 players who would be rotating in and around a lot of those um, those tournaments and seeing a lot of the same faces and a lot of the same coaches and until someone comes through from like the juniors or someone comes through and they break through from maybe a bit of the lower ranks, it's a lot of the same people. And then you were the highest world ranking female squash player. You've won two British Open Championships and two US Open Championships. How was it different sort of the British versus the US Championships? Um, I think... Well, for, for me personally, being a British squash player, obviously it means playing in front of a home crowd. Um, I won that first British Open title. Um, they put a glass, when I was talking about locations, they put a glass, an all glass court on one of the goal ends at Hull City Football Club. Um, so I won my British Open um, title kind of playing on um, a football pitch, which was really weird and all the crowd were sat in the football stands watching so I've never never done that before and I had never done it since and to be playing their Malaysian in the final like I've never known a crowd like it so to play in front of a home crowd like that and just feel that I mean don't get me wrong it works the other way like when you're a home player and you're expected to do well and you're not playing as well as you should do and you're not winning the crowd can go very quiet very quickly and then it sort of adds a completely different pressure to it so I think um, for me, playing in front of a home crowd was just something that, you know, was just really, really special and stay with me forever. And then in 2016, that was when you became the new, the new women's world number one for the first time in your career. Where was, where was that championships held and what was that like when you were crowned? So the ranking list works the same way as the tennis ranking list in that it comes out kind of, well, for us, it comes out the first of every month. So I sort of just assumed that, you know, you kind of play a tournament in November, December, and then I'd be kind of sat at home first of January or first of February, whenever, and it the new ranking list would come out and you'd be like, oh, I've gone to world number one and you'd just be down the club training or something. But actually I played a tournament in November and I'd play, uh, yeah, it, I'd played the US Open in November and won it and I'd played the Qatar Classic in November and won it. And then I went into the Hong Kong Open in December and I made the semi-final. And in the semi-final, I was playing the world number one at the time. And the guy from, you know, the Professional Squash Association said to me after my quarterfinal match, oh, you're playing Raneem, who's the world number one tomorrow. Um, who, if, you, if you win that match, you'll go to world number one on the 1st of January. 
and I was like how like why have you told me that I <laughs> why have you told me that I you know I have to win this match I'm going to like go to world number one which I thought was impossible because Nicole David had spent nine straight years at world number one probably never really thought it would happen and then Raneem had been the one to finally get her off that spot so yeah I played the semi-final the next day and managed to play really well and win and so I was in after winning Qatar winning the US Open and now in the final of Hong Kong regardless of how the final went I knew I had enough points to go to world number one on the 1st of January so needless to say it was a very uh, a very good New Year's Eve <laughs> yeah, for 2015-2016. Is that not so much pressure though him telling you that and you thinking well to being world number one you have to win that match was that not? Yeah it was awful and that's why I was like why why have you told me that but then in hindsight when you know later later after everything had cooled down and then you know like I was preparing for the semi for preparing for the semi-final my husband said well would you have preferred to have played that match and not known until after and then you know almost felt like you could change something and I was like yeah actually although it's really hard to deal with you want to go into that match knowing exactly what's on the line and luckily I was able to hold myself together mentally to get a good performance out um and she actually didn't she you know it wasn't a case of like oh we both played great and I just won she was actually a bit rubbish that day (laughs) she's not rubbish at all but you know it was a fairly straightforward win so I was quite proud of how I'd held myself together I think more than anything emotionally in that situation and just from all the opens and things there'd have been a lot of traveling to different places involved was that sort of a fun part of playing all these tournaments getting to see all these different cities and countries um I mean just I guess like any athlete says you see a hotel room and a squash court and they pretty much look the same wherever you are in the world so I guess you get a general feel of places that you kind of like that maybe you'd go back to if if you know now I'm retired you oh I might go back there because I really liked it um flying long hauls really tough like the jet lag's really tough it's hard on your body um but, you know, the, the higher up the rankings you get, the more sponsors you get, the more, you know, kind of support you get from airlines and sponsors, like the occasional kind of upgrade and stuff, which obviously happens all the time for top class, um, like high profile athletes. And it's a shame that with squash, no matter kind of how good you are, that doesn't happen quite kind of as standard. So it was really special when you could travel to an event business and it made such a huge difference to the jet lag and the kind of like the recovery to your body after the flight and stuff so when we could do that it was extra special really and so just talk me through like when you were training say for the world championship or for any of the opens what was your like week would you train every day or how did you sort of work um so yeah I trained Normally I trained five and well, five and a half days a week towards the end of my career. I trained six days a week, probably when I was a bit younger. And then I, I, I uh, retired at 35, which is quite late for a professional athlete. So obviously as time went on, you kind of have to adjust your training a little bit around that and knowing what your body can handle. But it would generally have been kind of like two weight sessions, working on my strength the week, They're generally sort of like a running session, which, which always um, was shorter time going out just running a 10k or a marathon or something like that you're just doing short times with short rest generally a squash rally will last somewhere between well anywhere between five and ten seconds to a minute or a minute and a half um so you're just running and and it's always a really short rest between 
rallies of like, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds. So you're constantly trying to train that system a little bit. So running, biking for the non-impact. And then would go on with my coach technically most weeks and play practice matches, train my squash, work on my technique um, away from my coach. Um, so yeah, gem- generally doing two sessions a day, five and a half days a week. And then I took Saturday afternoon, Sunday rest um, to hit the ground again on, on Mondays. And I was big, obviously looking after your body as well. It's all part of the training, kind of like physio, yoga, um, things that keep your body in one piece because squash is pretty brutal on the joints as well. Yeah, did you get ever any injuries or times where you have now? I think I, I think I was pretty lucky, mainly because I was I was pretty good at looking after my body. Saw the physio a lot, saw the massage a lot. I did one to one yoga, mainly just to keep my body in tip top shape. Um, I had a few injuries over the years, like every athlete will do, but nothing as serious as what you see a lot of athletes have. I had a couple of injuries with my back that were, um, you know, maybe just a week or two. And um, I rolled my ankle a couple of times, one which was particularly bad. But that's that sort of at the time, it's horrendous. But, you know, kind of looking back over, a, um, you know, kind of like a 15, 16 year career, it's really, really lucky, I think. And, you know, I'm quite really proud of how my body held up through through it all. And so, as you mentioned, you retired in 2019, ranked number 10 in the world. So that gave you an unbroken run of 11 years in the world top. <sighs> I've done my research so yeah, that's a good start as well one of the stats I'm most proud of actually was like because because obviously things changed so much over the course of a career yeah and what what made you decide to retire at the British Open in Hull how did you just feel I mean you were still you know in the top 10 so how why did you make that decision uh, well the reason to retire in 2019 was because I hadn't I hadn't really been in contention for any of the big events and my goal was always to be winning the big titles so I was starting to feel like my body was just slowing up a little bit and I wasn't playing my best level of squash anymore and if I didn't feel like I was entering these big tournaments with a chance to win them um, then it didn't really seem point it didn't really seem like much point to me and that's not the same for everyone some people are you know, like really happy to be playing and top 10 in the world is still great, but that means that you're probably losing in the quarterfinal a lot, maybe the odd semi-final, but it's a long way to then win a semi-final, win, win the title. So yeah, I just felt like the time was right. Obviously 35 for an athlete is quite old and the upside of being so professional and not having a lot of injuries and staying so fit um, was knowing when it was the right time because generally people retire because they're forced into it and that... Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't really the case for me so I think um, that was the main reason just not feeling like I was in contention to win the big titles anymore Um, and to retire in Hull just after what I just said about the British Open and how you know kind of great it was to play in front of a home crowd that it just seemed like the perfect send-off really. And do you still play do you still train you mentioned that you train is it you have like a squad so what do you do with it now yeah so I've got a couple of roles I work for head which is a racket company I'm sure anyone who plays tennis or does skiing kind of knows um has heard of head so I work for them on the squash tour and I'm like the link between the 
the brand and the professional players. So I really enjoy that. It's kind of a remote role, especially while COVID's been on. I hope to kind of get out to some events once COVID's sort of hopefully gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work for England Squash part-time, helping out with the juniors. Um, so trying to kind of give a little bit back to the juniors uh, all over the country. And then um, I coach out at David Lloyd. So that might be like I run a squad down there, do some individual coaching. Um, yeah, and just keep my hand in, keep keep doing bits and bobs. But um, I, I'm like at the moment, it's all slowing down because I'm seven and a half months pregnant. <laughs> so, um, which thank you, which is great. Like obviously something to look forward to in retirement, even though the belly is growing and that's very strange for a <laughs> professional athlete. And I'm not used to not going to the gym as much as I was, but it's really exciting due uh, mid-October. So um, I just probably did last last week, kind of like my last England squad until I come back maybe after Christmas and start kind of building up a little bit. But yeah, it's a bit of a weird one because you're not like on official maternity leave and self-employed in all of my roles. And even when I come back, I'll be kind of like dipping my toe in a little bit here and there. It's not just straight back into a nine to five job for example so yeah lots to look forward to in the next (laughs) or lots to dread (laughs) either way in the next couple of couple of months so we're just getting everything sorted for that and so you mentioned your husband does he play squash would he ever play with you or is he like he doesn't play or is he good or is he not (laughs) yeah no he uh he plays like to maybe kind of like a really good county level um and he was like a huge part of huge part of my my journey and becoming world number one. And he's a really really good coach. He actually works with a lot of um, squash players and people from other sports on the mental side of the game. Um, he's just finishing his PhD actually on um, how one might live well through you know kind of like an athletic lifestyle. So it's really interesting on you know how athletes can live well through a through a sporting life because that's not always the case as we know with a lot of mental health in the headlines these days it's really hard for athletes whether you're super successful or not as successful as you'd like doesn't always have a link on whether you are mentally kind of well and there's a lot of stress and pressure so um he was brilliant in helping me with all of that and also like a great coach in his own right. So we would, I would have my coach who was based in Harrogate and he would generally come with me and watch the lessons. And then we'd work on it at home for a week or two and then go back. So yeah, definitely like a huge part of me achieving what I did. Oh, and um, just a few more questions, but I was surprised with the Olympics that squash isn't an Olympic sport. Why? Like- yeah. I know I read that it had applied, but it got rejected because of other sports for the 2024. But why isn't it Olympic sport? Because it's it's so good. I don't understand that. I mean, your guess is as good as mine, to be honest. It's um, I think we were actually really, really close to getting an Olympic spot in 2012. Um, and then since then, not really done that great. And this Tokyo one was quite frustrating because they put in climbing surfing and skateboarding I think it was which you know actually when I watched the Olympics I actually really enjoyed watching the climbing and the skateboarding in particular I didn't see much of the surfing but um I think it's disappointing for squashing that as you know like it would be squash the pinnacle of anyone's squash squash playing career to win an Olympic medal 
Mm. Um, sometimes you watch the Olympics and think that isn't always the case with a lot of the sports that are there. However, it does it does also come down to money and TV rights and popularity and you know although squash is kind of like the Olympic ideal in terms of its motto higher faster stronger sort of thing it's it's perhaps not kind of as popular as it needs to be so I'm a really big believer that you know squash deserves to be there but that the pro tour is growing and the sport's great and the more we can just look after our own house that hopefully eventually someone um from somewhere in the world will get an opportunity to play for an olympic medal definitely and then more recently you've published a book called all in yes. becoming world champion when <laughs> did you start writing that book and sort of what was the process into publishing a book so i i mean the reason i wanted to write a book was well a couple of reasons one that no female squash player had written a book a couple of the blokes have so I sort of wanted to be there I wanted a female's perspective on how to write a squash you know like a, like a squash book although it's not um one of the goals for writing the book was that no matter what sport you play hopefully you can pick up this book and really feel like you can take something from it if you're into sport and tried to really make it not too squashy and not too squash jargony. Obviously, there's going to be elements of it that are about squash, but we're not getting into the nitty gritty of point by point details. It's more about, you know, hopefully talking a lot about my journey and how how my professional career panned out and this leading into kind of like the second reason of I've read a ton of books over my career and at the back of my book is a list of books that I've read that have helped my squash um, and when I wrote them all down there was over a hundred and I sort of wanted to be able to put down my own story into a book and in the hope that maybe some young athlete somewhere will pick it up and find it as helpful as I did when I was reading all of these other books. So there's a lot of stories in there about kind of like dealing with kind of like early family life it was a great like I was had a really supportive family but there was also a lot of pressure there as well so like how to deal with that how to start out you know kind of like on a pro tour diet body image women equality in women's sport um, and, and a huge amount on the mental side of the game which people say was like one of my main strengths like how mentally strong I was but really interesting that you know I didn't always think I was mentally strong um, even though no one saw that from the outside so I just thought it was really interesting to write about the fact that you know maybe I wasn't <laughs> like what what you see on the outside isn't always what's going on on the inside and, and I was hoping that someone might pick up the book and and really resonate with that. And did you start it in lockdown like last year or has it been a few years How, what was the time scale like? Well, I, I always wanted to do it, but I think with a book, you have to be completely honest. I didn't want to write a book that was a bit kind of like wishy-washy. I wanted to be honest. And I think I, I knew I needed to be retired for that to happen. So I could be completely honest, give away a few, you know, you want to give away everything that you, you know, not going to want to give away while you're still playing. So I kept diaries throughout my whole career. So I went through a lot of those and they were a big part of the book and I had a little bit of help writing it and together we sort of like went through that as the lockdown went on and then heavy editing process and then we sat on it for a while as well <laughs> like just not knowing when the best time to release a book was during covid and then just decided to go for it in like for a june 1st release and um it's out on kindle paperback and hardback now 
and then in the next couple of weeks we're going to release the audio <laughs> the audiobook version so if you've enjoyed listening to my northern dulcet you know dulcet northern tones today then um you'll enjoy the audiobook I'm sure <laughs> you had to read that all yeah I wanted to because I think that I've read a lot of books like I said and I think regardless of the author's accent or you know the way they speak I think it gives you an insight into them as a person and at the end of the day you're reading their book and what's also really cool about the book is that it's got guest chapters running throughout so my coach my husband my physical trainer my physiotherapist um my manager um all just like what they thought about my career and about me and maybe why I made it to the top and little insights and stuff and they all came in and recorded their own chapter (laughs) so I was so happy with that so it breaks up my voice and it also gives you a little bit of an insight to their personality and their voice and everything like that as you as you're listening to the book so I thought it was quite unique in that way yeah definitely and um so as you said like the books published it was out in like Waterstone shops like that on Amazon anywhere you can buy a book I guess yeah, so it's available in hardback on my website, which um, so because like the hard the hardbacks are personalized. So you buy that on the website and you can have a message and signature in there. The paperbacks are available on Amazon and also on my website. Um, Waterstones are stocking it. But I think you normally would have to order it in from them um, and it's available on Kindle as well. And then, like I said, order, it'll be out on Audible, Apple and I think Google on, on audio book in the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's exciting. And I know that I saw on your Instagram, I think a few weeks ago or last week, that um, there was your book in a car that you were like, <laughs> someone, what was what was that? That was so like coincidental. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, um, I was kind of heading over to Hull to watch some of the squash. And when I came out, there was a, that my book was in the the glove compartment sticking out of this car so I was like that is so cool you know who who would have thought that you'd park next to a car and see your own book there um so yeah it was it was kind of one of those weird moments I was like just that weirdo taking a picture inside someone (laughs) inside someone's car as I was getting into my own car to come home and so finally if people like the sound of squash fancy having a go heading I don't know to the local squash courts how's the best way to sort of get involved with this and what kind of qualities should the person have like you sound very competitive but kind of what (laughs) what kind of quality I mean yeah to like get involved in any sport I guess you kind of have to be competitive but you know not always when you're starting out I think you know for anyone who's a member of David Lloyd obviously that would be really easy to kind of go down there but other than that um just in the local area most leisure centers have ports um which is great you can probably hire a racket from reception make sure you get the right ball Uh, um, and then when you go I mean if you wanted to go further afield the um our national center our national squash center is actually in Manchester they have six six like kind of normal courts I mean plaster courts and then they have an all glass court which is uh in in the center so you can you can go that's right by Man City's ground that's a pretty unique place to have a go at um other other than that like checking out England Squash's website you can probably find your local club on there and I mean I recently teamed up actually with a really cool app called Racket Pal and that's actually for squash badminton and tennis and you sign up for the app for free and put your details in put your level in and it'll pop up with all the other players who are on the app in your area 
so you can find a partner and then arrange where to play later and I, I thought that was a really cool concept actually because if for people particularly who maybe love squash or tennis or badminton and are working away from home um you can sign up to there and find someone who's you know kind of maybe in your area at the time yeah oh it sounds interesting it's definitely got me wanting to go back to hire a court <laughs> have a go so thank you so much for coming on the podcast and again congratulations and good luck with the baby <laughs> thank you it's all a bit it's all a bit um exciting and nerve-wracking at the moment but yeah he should be here in about six weeks or so so we'll see <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass.